Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show. Globally, COVID-19 cases have dropped by half around the world. Why? Is that protocol? Is it vaccine? Is it a combination of all? A fascinating article entitled Trudeau's Willful Blindness to the Evils of Chinese Communism is Rearing Its Ugly Head, and the Prime Minister has had to address these issues. Conservatives are calling for a change of venue when it comes to the Beijing 2022 Olympics. Should we be sending our athletes to a country where they have detained the two Michaels for over 800 days? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I'm not sure how I'll do in school today. COVID-19 is bad enough. But that snow day, oh, it wiped me out. I may need another day to, you know, shovel. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Is it me? Are we getting a little bit more ham with that sandwich every lunchtime? <laughs> You're going a bit longer, a little bit more dramatic, a little bit more laid back. Yeah, what the heck? Hey, that's what happens when you're uh, week 49 into a global pandemic. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air with content production from Jordan. Uh, and, of course, doing a great job, as uh, always, Jordan Armanis. What else we got? Oh, uh, seeing some weird stuff. Uh, COVID-19 cases dropping by half across the world. That's globally. And and many experts are, are, are trying to figure out why, whether it's, you know, vaccinations that have uh, started to kick in in other parts of the world, whether it's uh, everybody jumping on the masking uh, uh, protocols and such and just uh, and just, uh, you know, getting um getting everything in 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 gear uh this is just breaking by the way this is totally unrelated rush limbaugh monumental influencer in conservative talk radio has died at 70 i'm getting that from fox news by the way uh so uh you know and a lot of people are trying to explain this could this just be the protocol you know catching up and finally we're getting a handle on this is it herd immunity uh where uh you know other people have have had it and, and have become immune to it it's uh it's a very bizarre scenario and uh there was a a fascinating article on this uh, in the Globe and Mail uh, by Kelly Grant. Global COVID-19 cases have dropped by half uh, and experts are looking for explanations. To talk more about this, the author is with us, Kelly Grant. Kelly, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, thanks very much for having me. So this is a very odd uh, headline to see right now, especially when, you know, it was just last week we're talking about all these new var- uh, variants that are coming out and how much of a concern they are. Uh, tell us about this and, and about this story and, and, and just how, obviously, we're starting to notice the cases decline a bit. Yeah, well, I think one of the interesting things that is happening now and that I wanted to point out is that both the things you just mentioned can be true at the same time. Um, the variants are Spreading, and there is real concern there about that. But that is happening at the same time as overall cases in Canada, the United States, 
the UK, South Africa, uh, parts of Europe, India, um, are really dropping. And so, uh, so I wanted to look a little bit more into what the reasons are for that. And there's a sort of whole host of theories that I can uh, go into if you'd like. Absolutely. But I guess the importance of this is this will help us keep ahead of a third wave. Is that accurate? I think so. I mean, I've now spent so many months covering this that I never want to make definitive statements one way or yeah. another. This virus keeps, you know, throwing new tricks at us. So I'm always careful to be humble. But I think when we're looking at controlling what the impact of the variants will be, it is obviously considerably easier to do that if cases are lower. It makes it more possible to do contact tracing and isolation, um, and it makes it more possible to to take the steps necessary to control the virus, and that includes the variants. I mean, these are not um, they are not super evil versions of the virus that you know travel through walls if people never leave their houses. Okay. Um, one of the things we have seen in the UK, in Ireland, in Portugal, in um, in South Africa all places where um, the new versions of the coronavirus have essentially displaced the old version completely, is that they have all been able to bring their cases down using public health measures like social distancing and masking and lockdowns. They still work against these variants. So um, is this just uh, timing everything, all of these variables coming together, uh, the new cases declining, obviously the variants on the increase, but so is vaccination, so is masking protocol. Is it all of these issues intersecting at once? So, yeah, it's a little bit of a whole bunch of different things. I think the first thing I would point out is something that probably seems pretty obvious to people, but... If you look at the case curves, I mean, the peaks in Canada, the United States, and a lot of other countries that celebrate Christmas came about two weeks after the holidays. So, you know, regardless of what um, restrictions were in place in different countries, it seems that a lot of people did travel and gather for the holidays. Now, of course, the difference in the height of that peak, you know, really changes depending on the country. And Canada's peak was not nearly as high as some other countries. But you can see that we are experiencing a bit of a post-holiday phenomenon that, um, you know, people just don't have the same social pressure to gather as they did, you know, that last week of December when everybody wants Mm -hmm. to get together for Christmas and New Year's. So to a certain extent, that's gone away. I think another element is that, you know, we can see it in the mobility data that people are staying home more. And that could have to do with a couple of things. One, just, you know, there isn't that same social pressure to gather in January or February, right? Not a lot going on. Um, And I think that the news of the variants has, you know, put some fear into people and has made people more inclined to follow the rules. And on top of that, of course, I think a really obvious thing we have to point out is that in Ontario, where cases really have have gone down quite considerably since the beginning of January, you know, the government did put in place a shutdown followed by a stay-at-home order. Um, So so there's a sort of variety of things. The other element, which is a bit more of a wild card, is the question of how seasonal is this virus? you know, we know other respiratory viruses um, are, are, have a very strong seasonal effect. We see it every year in terms of the flu season or the RSV season or the cold season. Um, we do see that, you know, these cases really go up dramatically and then they go down dramatically. And, you know, in a normal year, our, our behavior doesn't change all that dramatically. And yet flu, for all intents and purposes, disappears in the summer. Now, this is a different virus and a different virus in the important way that when it first emerged in humans, 
you know, we had no immunity whatsoever to speak of. We had not been living with this virus versus something like influenza or other respiratory viruses where there is a fair bit of immunity that exists in the population. So, I mean, all of these things are, are happening right now at the same time. And it's but it's interesting to see um, how not perfectly consistent, but fairly consistent it is that the drop is happening really in, in, in a lot of different parts of the world with different policies and different climates in place. There was certainly chatter uh, of this as well in India, that they are noticing the same sort of decline. But again, as you mentioned earlier, it's it's a case of, it seems like it's a case of all of this stuff coming together. Uh, they were talking about how in, in India they have, you know, uh, accepted the protocol and so on and so forth. And, and that alone is going to make a substantial impact in the, in the virus. Yeah, so India is a really interesting case. And um, I will be honest that I don't, completely understand i don't i think there's lots of people who don't totally i don't think anybody does yeah (laughs) yeah but the i mean the cases in india have just plunged um and and now they're different in the sense that they didn't have a big holiday surge and post-holiday surge they peaked back in september um and their cases have been dropping really you know kind of ever since um so there are a couple of different theories with india and one of them is the thinking that the seroprevalence there might be quite a bit higher that they may actually be in a position of um, approaching some partial immunity that may be helping, um, helping to slow things down in that country. Um, I, I, I certainly, you know, don't say that with any sort of certainty, but, um, you know, the thinking is that considering how many Indian cities are very crowded, um, you know, how likely perhaps it is that, you know, there were a lot more asymptomatic cases there than were ever identified. Um, it, it's really hard to say, but they, they have seen a really dramatic, um, dramatic plunge there. Yeah, it is very odd and, and certainly raising a lot of uh, of questions. And we remember the early part of this pandemic, and I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was Sweden, they sort of went for the herd, humi- uh, he- uh, herd uh, immunity uh, theory and said, well, you know, we're not going imp- to implement any of these protocols. But then it took a bad turn for them, didn't it? It did. Um, and, and I also won't it's been a while since I've looked in depth at the Swedish numbers. So, you know, I don't want to speak yeah. out of turn here, but, but, you know, generally in comparison to the other Scandinavian countries that took a, a sort of more um, hardcore approach to trying to stop the spread of the virus, Sweden did seek, you know, considerably more deaths and quite a few more people in hospital. And, and I mean, that's, that is sort of the price of aiming for hum- herd immunity. Uh, you know, so though is the development of the variants. I mean, I think one thing that we've really learned in the last month or two, as we have seen the emergence of some of these variants of concern, is that, you know, if the virus is given millions and millions and millions and millions of opportunities to replicate, the likelihood that it will hit upon a, a mutation that confers a specific advantage, you know, that, that goes up. And some of these variants we're looking at now um, – Seem to um, seem to be capable of escaping the immunity provided by a previous infection. Uh, so that is a very concerning turn of events. And the more you're able to control the virus and give it fewer opportunities to mutate, you know, the less likely you'll see that happen. And obviously, the faster we vaccinate, the more chance there is in in curbing those future uh, variants. Yeah, I mean, the faster we can vaccinate, the better. So that's another thing that when we're talking about the drop in global cases. Um, so a, a really important question is, you know, what role is vaccination playing? And I think the general consensus is that in the vast majority of the world that has started um, immunization campaigns, that it's it's a little too early to think that we're seeing, you know, really an impact um, of vaccination on transmission. 
Um, but in a couple of places, the United States and the UK are, are two of them. They have vaccinated such a large percentage of their populations that, you know, they're nowhere near what we would think of as the herd immunity threshold, but that they may be reaching partial immunity, especially because both of those countries that I just mentioned have had, you know, huge previous waves of this virus. So they have, you know, quite a large percentage of their population that was infected naturally. So they may be seeing a, a slowdown that, um, that includes as one of its possible explanations the fact that it is becoming harder for the virus to find new people to infect because when it tries to move on, you know, it bumps up against somebody who's vaccinated or somebody who has immunity from a prior natural infection. And as far as we know, in both the United States and Britain, this, I mean, the Britain, the, the B117 variant, which is the one that is more contagious, but seems to respond very well to the vaccines and, um, you know, doesn't re doesn't seem at this point to reinfect people very easily who've previously been infected naturally. You know, so it, it, in the UK, that some of the explanation for the drop, one element of it could be the vaccination drive, and the same could be true in the US, but it's only one element. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting when you're comparing uh, countries, as you said earlier, uh, that celebrated a holiday through December and how they all experienced or we all experienced that holiday surge much. And it was predictive, really. Uh, that certainly explains now why they uh, they've they've done what they've done with March break and, and pushed it back. They probably you know they made it almost impossible to travel. Uh, they postponed the March break for another week or sorry for another month, uh, which will obviously uh, stop that uh, mass transmission from happening or at least cut it down. That's the hope here. Yeah, I think that is that is the the, the hope. Although, um, you know, the the sort of whole policy around schooling can sometimes be for me, hard to, to get my head my head around. Is it safer for kids to be in school? Is it safer for them to be out of school? Is there a ton of transmission happening in schools that we don't know about because of a lack of asymptomatic testing? Um, I mean, I have three kids who went back to school finally yesterday, and I could not be more thrilled that they are not currently in my house learning on a computer <laughs> sitting beside me. Um, yep. But uh, I, I know lots of questions were made about how useful postponing the March break to April will be. Um, I said on Twitter uh, I guess a week or two ago before this decision was made that I personally would be quite happy to have them postpone until the end of June when maybe there's a chance, you know, we can leave our houses safely. But uh, I have a lot of sympathy as well for um, teachers who I know are very exhausted after this really crazy up and down year. And I do feel a bit bad for them about the fact that they've lost this opportunity to have a break. You know, and you think about it too. Uh, you know, I, I've I've done a, a like a topic sheet every day that this uh, I've been working from home, and we're just finishing week number forty nine. March break coming up will be. I think the kids were off Monday. I was out by Wednesday. Uh, what I'm finding fascinating about this, and even as we're talking about the variants and these cases dropping, and then in, in in all the concerns we have one year later, we are still very much learning about this as we go, aren't we? We sure are. And I think, you know, as I said before, some, some humility is really important to, uh, to, to keep in front of us. We're learning more about this virus every day, about how people react to it. Um, I mean, who would have thought, God, a, a year ago that we would still be at yeah. home, you know, doing this, living through this. And, you know, although I think there, there are some positive trends to celebrate in the case counts, we're still a long way from being out of this. Yeah, I, I just happened to stumble across a, a show sheet from February 12th, 2020, and the very first interview was with Dr. Isaac Bogosh, 
uh, of of uh, University of Toronto talking about all the various uh, things that we're calling this virus, uh, coronavirus, SARS, coronavirus two, all of that sort of stuff. And e- even at this point, we had no idea what we we're even getting into a year ago at all. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kelly Grant's been with us, health reporter for the Globe and Mail, and the article is uh, Global COVID-19 Cases Have Dropped by Half, and Experts Are Looking for Explanations. Kelly, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Be well. Okay, then. Same to you. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here's today's daily commentary. Yesterday, the federal government announced its new restrictions for firearms and a gun buyback program. I'm not here to debate the merits of such a program, but during a global pandemic? Or is this another bait-and-switch attempt by the Prime Minister to distract Canadians away from their most serious issue of the year? When the heck can we get a COVID-19 vaccination? We are still waiting. Sure, gun control is a hot-button election platform, as is climate change, climate change, climate change, and other social issues. But is it the most pressing kitchen table talk around the country, especially this year? I don't think so. Justin Trudeau only announced a U.S. vaccine production deal for Canada after the U.K. proved they could produce their own. Why aren't we? Justin Trudeau only talked of a meeting with premiers about Canadian vaccine production plans after the Manitoba premier announced they were buying their own Canadian-made vaccine instead of waiting for the federal government. This looks like it has very little to do with Canada's abundance of guns and more to do with Canada's shortage of vaccine and distracting Canadians away from that fact. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, uh, we have talked at length on this show about uh, the relationship between China and Canada and how it has uh, deteriorated, not only with this country, but uh, pretty much uh, around the world. Uh, And a fascinating column uh, by John Robson, Trudeau's willful blindness to the evils of Chinese communism. Uh, If you're wondering what it would take for the Trudeau administration to get over its crush on Chinese communism, I have no idea, John Robson writes. And again, uh, whether it's 5G, whether it's the two Michaels, uh, whether it's the CanSino deal, it's just fascinating uh, what has uh, happened. Let's bring in from the National Post, John Robson. He is with us now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing just fine, thanks. Uh, you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, the headline uh, and um, in, 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 in the article in the National Post uh, you're, you're even, and even in the, in the sub headline, uh, it says, even if, uh, uh, you ask the prime minister whether, uh, the president was a communist, he wouldn't admit it. Uh, oddly enough, yesterday at a news conference, the prime minister was asked about the genocide of the Uyghurs, uh, Muslim Uyghurs in China, and he didn't want to call it genocide. Are you surprised about that? I'm doing my best to be surprised and it's not working out. And as, as the National Post pointed out on its front page today, two years ago he was asked if Canada was genocidal. And he said yes, including under me. Yeah. And then he's asked, well, is, uh, is Xi Jinping's China genocidal? And he's like, oh, you know, that's a complicated word. And I feel like I'm just going into the dance of the seven vagues about it. Um, and it, it, but it's of a piece with this unwillingness to recognize 
the existence of hostile foreign powers. And we've seen this movie before. In a way, it's not so much the question of whether he classifies China as a hostile foreign power as whether he is in principle capable of understanding that such things exist. And that's why I brought up this question. If, if some reporter were to stand up and ask him in a press conference, which I don't think they will, but if they said, is China communist? Is Xi Jinping communist? I would lay long odds against him saying yes. Just as people back in the Cold War, is Stalin a communist? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, you know, and back in before that, you know, is, is Hitler a Nazi trying to conquer the world? No, 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 of course not. That uh, th- there's a line from Soviet dissident Vladimir Bukovsky who said that Western liberals are like a bat, the backward dog of Russian folklore because they wag their tail at strangers and bark at their own family. And so Trudeau actually, I mean, he didn't say Canada had been genocidal. He said, yeah, there's an ongoing genocide. I'm the prime minister and there's a genocide going on. I suppose maybe I should do something about it. How, how do I look? How my socks? Uh, but then when you've got a real honest-to-goodness genocide going on, he's like, well, you know, uh, let's talk about our failings. Uh, here's a clip of him answering that question yesterday. This is the Prime Minister. I think the primary concern we have as a government that has always been responsible about using this extremely loaded term is not uh, applying it to things that don't meet the very clear uh, internationally recognized criteria around genocide. Uh, there is no question that there have been tremendous uh, human rights human rights abuses reported uh, coming out of Xinjiang, uh, and we are extremely concerned of that and have highlighted our concerns many times. But when it comes to the application of the very specific word genocide, uh, we simply need to ensure uh, that all of the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed in the processes uh, before a determination like that is made. We recognize that there are uh, different organizations and even countries uh, that have made that declaration, uh, and the international community and Canada are leaning in carefully uh, to make sure that we can make the right declaration moving forward. How will Canadians, or even those around the world, um, how will they react to that explanation, John? <laughs> They won't. I mean, you know, we always think the world is fixated on Canada, but the world is... I was once traveling around the world as a youth, and I told someone I was from Canada, and they refused to believe there was such a place. <laughs> um, you know, nobody cares about Trudeau doing this shifty stuff, because the thing is, like, if, if it's complicated dotting the I's and crossing the T's, and you're the prime minister of a G7 country, and you have all these reports that there's a genocide, you'd find somebody you trusted and say, is it or isn't it? I need to know. You wouldn't get up in this press conference you know, years into it and go, oh, well, because see the international community, this and the technical, that and so on. And again, he says, you know, there's a very precise definition. Someone should have said, yeah, what is it? Uh, I'd like to see him try and answer that question. But, but the, and the thing is, yeah, somebody else from the cabinet said, well, we need more data, right? We need to go in there and get a look. Uh, which, of course, yes, I'm sure Xi Jinping will just, would just love to have you come in and, and have a look, and he won't get, have people get in your way at all, like that WHO mission that went there and said, well, we're, we're trying to figure out where COVID came from, and, you know, maybe it was from a lab, and the Chinese said it wasn't from a lab. And the WHO mission said, oh, it wasn't from a lab. The Chinese told us it wasn't from a lab, so that's okay. Um, you know, this, is, this kind of groveling and, and dancing around um, 
if Trudeau wanted to know if it was a genocide, if he was prepared to say it was one, if it was one, he'd have, he'd have got someone to tell him by now. The Canadian government is quite large. It has a sophisticated apparatus, a lot of talented people in the public service who could have investigated the question and either, you know, given him, a, he didn't want to say maybe no, because then he'd look stupid, but he doesn't want to say yes either. And I, I should mention in this context, it might seem like a, a change of subject, but it's not really. There was another piece in today's post um, right next to my splendid column here, in which um, Rupa Surmanya discusses the um, extent of CPP inv- uh, investments in China. The, the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board um, has, I just want to make sure I get the exact number here correct, um, because it's, it's just colossally huge. Um, 12% of their total investments, apparently, are in China. Right, one dollar and eight of the money that Canadians are counting on for their pensions is now in the hands of the Politburo. Does that and explain? So, does that explain the Prime Minister's love affair with China? Well, no, I think the reverse is true. I think the Prime Minister's love affair with China explains this. If if the Prime Minister saw China for what it is, he would tell the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, "Don't go making our pensions hostage." Uh, because that would be insanely stupid. Like, would you give all that money to Leonid Brezhnev? No, I don't think you'd do that. Is Xi Jinping more benign than Leonid Brezhnev? Good heavens, no. He's far more dangerous, as any fool can see, uh, except this one, apparently. So, uh, John, let me ask you, because obviously in the last week or so, this has really come to the forefront, uh, finally. Uh, but, you know, you even look at Huawei and the decision still being made on 5G. Then, of course, uh, uh, Huawei investing money into Canadian universities. Uh, the Canadian VP denouncing uh, the detainment of the Huawei CFO. Uh, the two Michaels, the CanSino deal. I mean, this is, it, there's just incident after incident after incident example after an example why does the prime minister have this love affair with china you know it is a very puzzling thing when one is tempted to uh to make um sort of low insinuations and they've got something on him but i don't think it's that i mean you look at you look at john mccallum you know and you look at the exactly um all these people they're very good at finding fault with their own societies and very bad at detecting hostility abroad. And they know, too, that there's this, you know, there's this comfortable life post-politics if you don't rock the boat. Um, you know, there are these senior advisories, these consultancies. You get on these trade promotion things. You do a lot of travel. You do a lot of exotic spots with your family. Nobody's auditing your expense account very carefully. And nobody's expecting you to do a lot of work, Right. The idea is to encourage other people while in office to take the same view and also to feel like I'm above all that red baiting hostility. I believe in harmony among peoples. I am broad minded, unlike the narrow bigots who think that the Western way of life is better because it has things like individual rights and limited government. And and so, again, you see that, that uh, premier saying, that, well, you know, we want to they have, they have their own way of doing things and we should go and learn. You, you feel like you're on the side of the angels talking like that. Um, and so I think it's a combination of, sort of conceit and shallowness and this, that point Bukowski made, this kind of feeling that all, all the trouble in the world comes from the West. And there's, there's almost a narcissism here of thinking that the, the state of the world is determined entirely by what we do. Foreign hostility, A, only happens if we cause it, because everything is caused by us, and B, it can't touch us if we're sufficiently pure. So all we need to do is call ourselves genocidal, and there's no threat from China. And so the steel of vanity and model-headedness and soft-heartedness and soft-headedness 
uh, creates what Lenin called useful idiots. It's not a new phenomenon. We've seen this plenty of times. Remember Walter Durante yep. won a Pulitzer Prize for denying Stalin's famines. And the Times never sent it back, not even in the, you know, the 1980s they still kept it. It's like, yeah, we're proud of this thing. Um, and I just think it's more of that. And I think we've seen this movie, we know how it ends, and we shouldn't be willing to pay to watch it. Uh, recent polling, and, and, and this has been ever, ever since the pandemic has started, and the two Michaels and such, over 90% of Canadians are not happy with China and our relations with China. Is that resonating with the Prime Minister at all? <laughs> It doesn't seem to be. And it, it's interesting. I know that when, when the Cold War was starting, public opinion polls showed, interestingly enough, that the American people tended not to trust the Soviet government. The American elite was kind of volatile in its perceptions. But the average American was just like, no, there are a bunch of no-good commies, and we know it. And so uh, I think that people, it's not a high salience issue for them. That's the thing. They, they support the liberals for other reasons. And they don't think this one's a big deal. And this is a classic, as in you know, economics, so in geopolitics. Things take longer to happen, this is the Rudy Dornbusch line, than you thought they would, and then they happen faster than you believe possible. And China's got, the kid gloves are off now, right? The Chinese are making their lunge for world domination. And so they really pretty much cease pretending. The plan is by 2049, they'll be the dominant power. They'll have a military twice the size of the United States, and everybody will have to adopt their thinking starting in 2050. And so, the, you know, the, the, the manners are gone. But I think they underestimate the strength of the West. I don't want this all to sound hideously bleak. And when the people wake up and wake their governments up, and this is what's going to have to happen. I mean, even 1945, FDR was praising Stalin. Um, but, but the populace was like, no, I don't, we don't like Stalin very much. Uh, I think that there's a chance that we can wake them up. Of course, it would help if, the, if Trudeau had better opposition. Um, you know, Jagmeet Singh despite saying all the stuff the NDP normally says in a very belligerent way, you can't remember a word he ever uttered. And Aaron O'Toole, of course, is, is just hopeless. Um, but even so, I, th- I think that Trudeau is badly offside on an issue that's going to get more important because China's going to do something. It's going to attack something. They're, they're going to do something really belligerent soon. Um, and then Trudeau is going to look like a fool. Well, I mean, I think he already does, but he'll, he'll look many, it's, more many, like many have already said the two Michaels is that uh, line to cross. Uh, oh, no, we'll I'm, I'm talking about something like invading yeah. Taiwan. I mean, yeah. even, even crushing Hong Kong doesn't seem to have made an impression on people. Yeah. But, but don't worry, there's more where that came from, because the Chinese are building this blue water navy and they're carrier-busting hypersonic missiles. They're, they're ready for the world to kowtow to them, as it should, and as they think it always should have, and they don't know why it hasn't been doing it all along. But they're good and ready to make it do it now. And I'll leave you one, one final thought. The you know, People's Liberation Army, it's the biggest military in the world. It's not the Chinese army. It is the armed wing of the Chinese Communist Party. And if that doesn't get people's attention, I'm at a bit of a loss to know what will. So I'll just say it again. The People's Liberation Army is not a state military. It is a branch of the Communist Party. John Robson, uh, journalist for the National Post, Trudeau's willful blindness to the evils of Chinese communism. John, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Always a pleasure. You too, and all the listeners. Here's what uh, Aaron O'Toole had to say, and this is a fascinating aside to all of this, the Beijing Olympics uh, coming up in 2022. Um, you might remember a week or so ago, the prime minister said, we're not going to say anything. We're going to leave it up to the IOC to decide whether the uh, athletes, uh, the Canadian athletes go. Uh, Aaron O'Toole is asking for the games to be relocated. Here's what he had to say. I think Canadians would agree that it would violate universal fundamental ethical principles to participate in an Olympic Games 
hosted by a country that is committing a genocide against part of its own population. The Olympic Games and the athletes who compete in them inspire each generation, and they must continue to provide such inspiration, but not in China, in the shadow of a genocide. Today, I call on Prime Minister Trudeau to actively seek the relocation of the 2022 Olympic Games. Canada should not be sending athletes to China in the middle of a genocide. All right, let's bring in Michael Chong, Conservative MP for Wellington, Halton Hills, and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm great, thanks, Scott. Hope you're doing well, too. So is it feasible to relocate the Beijing Olympics at this time? Is this the right, is this the right route to take here? Well, we think so. We're, we're calling on the government to make a formal request of the, of the International Olympic Committee to seek the relocation of the 2022 Winter Olympic Games. Um, we should at least try uh, to relocate these games because we don't think that uh, Canada should be sending athletes to China in the middle of a genocide. Do you think this is gaining momentum at all? I mean, it certainly seems in the last few weeks, um, certainly in the last latter parts of uh, of this pandemic, uh, Canadian attitude has been changing towards communist, uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, is is this sort of movement growing? Are we hearing more and more concerned about the Olympics? I think we are, Scott. I think the movement is growing, and the reason why it's growing is because more information is coming to light about the about the human rights violations being perpetrated by the government of China. Um, numerous Liberal MPs have come to the conclusion that a genocide is going on, including uh, MPs from all parties on a multi-party parliamentary committee. We now have two U.S. administrations, including the current Biden administration, that has concluded a genocide is going on. We've got numerous reports now that have emerged in the last year from reputable organizations that have made those conclusions. And so that's why I think there's increasing calls for the Olympics to be relocated. Uh, obviously, the Prime Minister uh, refusing to use the word genocide when referring to uh, the Uyghurs in China. So uh, if he's not going to make that statement, what do you think the chances are of him getting involved here? Well, we think the evidence is sufficient to come to that conclusion, which is why we're calling on the government to first recognize that a genocide is going on, to join with our allies like the United States. In that recognition, we're also calling on the government to encourage other allies to join in that recognition. You know, it was just over 75 years ago that the Second World War ended, and we had the horrors of the Holocaust. And we pledged as Canadians and as democracies that never again would we allow something like that to happen. And so we can't stand idly by and turn a blind eye to these mass atrocities that are taking place. There's evidence of systematic population controls that are in place, uh, sexual violence being perpetrated by the government of China, mass detentions of people in camps of upwards of a million people. Um, This is not acceptable. And like Canada has in the past, it needs to speak with a clear voice on this issue. You know, in the 1980s, the Canadian government took a principled stand on apartheid in South Africa. It didn't lead to the immediate end of apartheid. But it was a clarion call to the world to take action. And several years later, we all know what happened. Apartheid was dismantled, and Nelson Mandela was released from jail. And 
uh, justice was served. And so this call for Canada to relocate the Olympics is similar. We need Canada to speak with a clear voice on this and to call the world's countries to action on this um, because turning a blind eye is simply not an option. What about just keeping our athletes home? You know, uh, what they would they do at the Olympics is up to the world. Uh, Canada can still make a statement by keeping their athletes back. Well, we think a relocation should be the first attempt uh, to rectify the situation. There are plenty of uh, venues around the world that have previously hosted the Olympics, and it would provide our athletes a chance to participate in something that they've worked on for years to accomplish, which is to represent Canada on the world stage. Um, so our first call is for the government to formally request of the International Olympic Committee a relocation of the Beijing Winter Games. Any idea where the IOC is on any of this? Uh, no, we haven't. Uh, there's been no formal reaction from the IOC to um, any request from Canada because the government has yet to make any request uh, known. So, you know, we should at least explore this option. Um, that has yet to be done, and that's why we're calling on the government to take that action. You know, considering what has happened, Michael, with uh, Michael Spavier and Michael Kovrig, what about, I'd be very concerned over the safety of the athletes um, or any of the delegation that's going over there. I mean, at the end of the day, they still have taken two Canadians hostage. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think uh, that is a fair point. There are travel advisories by the government of Canada uh, for people traveling to China. And I think the safety and security of Canadians is very top of mind uh, when it comes to traveling to China, which is another reason why the government needs to make its position on this clear and needs to request a relocation of the games. Uh, what about somebody has suggested that um, rather than um, changing the the, uh, the site for the games or pulling the Canadian athletes out, keeping uh, the official delegates home? A lot of them, a lot of politicians, a lot of uh, well-heeled show up for the opening ceremonies. What about just telling all of them to stay home and let the athletes play? Well, once we've explored uh, a relocation of the games, that's certainly something else that could be considered. Um, the government is refusing to even take a position on sending a government representative to the opening and closing ceremonies of the games. Um, you know, look, it, it's clear now that there are gross human rights violations taking place in China, not just with respect to the Uyghurs, but also with respect to Tibet, with respect to other religious and ethnic minorities in China, with respect to the, some 300,000 Canadian citizens living in Hong Kong. It's no longer acceptable for us to turn a blind eye to this. I think the evidence is sufficient to conclude that there are mass human rights violations taking place and that uh, we can, can't simply turn a blind eye and allow our athletes to participate in the games in Beijing. Uh, do, how, what about the United States? Where are they on this? Uh, are, are they, would, they consider sim, would they consider similar action? Well, the U.S. administration, the uh, President Biden's administration has concluded that a genocide uh, is taking place that was confirmed by the new Secretary of State. Uh, they're currently reviewing their policies toward China. Uh, they've indicated that they're going to be taking a much stronger stand on China. And we believe the Canadian government should join the U.S. in recognizing this genocide. We also believe that they should be working with the United States uh, to seek a relocation of the games.
Another thing I was thinking, Michael, too, is the timeline here. You think of uh, the Beijing uh, 2022 Olympics and where the Huawei CFO case will be by that point. Um, by that time, uh, she could be on her way to the United States, which w- which could drastically change this again, no? That's right. I, you know, this is all predicated on on China's current treatment of minorities and violations of human rights that are taking place. If China changes its ways, then obviously, you know, the government uh, can change its position on a relocation or a boycott of the game. So this is all about putting pressure on China to, to change its ways in regards to the genocide that's taking place and other human rights violations. Uh, the Prime Minister has said that he is leaving it up to uh, the Canadian Olympic organizations to determine whether our athletes even go or not. What are your thoughts on that? Should, again, before we take a stance to relocating, should we say we're not going? Well, I think that's a cop-out. I think that's an abdication of responsibility. And it flies in the face of Canada's tradition, proud tradition, and legacy on the world stage, where we've always stood for human rights and dignity of people around the world. We did it some 75 years ago when we, uh, when we fought in the Second World War to liberate Europe from the tyranny of Nazism. Uh, we did it some 35 years ago when the Canadian government took a strong stand against apartheid, a stand that wasn't uh, universally popular at the time. Um, so I think it's a cop-out. I think the government needs to take a strong position on this, be a clarion call for action uh, so that we can meet this challenge of our generation. Where is this, uh, where are Canadians on this, do you think, Uh, whether it's the Olympics or our relationship with China? We all remember, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, China was the golden goose, everybody couldn't wait to invest in China, Uh, and boy, the last couple of decades, that's been all the chatter. Uh, We've certainly seen with polling that uh, Canadians' attitudes are changing uh, in that regard, but do you think Canadians would support uh, a boycott of the Beijing Olympics or, or changing the site, as you have said? Well, Scott, I've heard from hundreds, if not thousands, of constituents and people in the greater Toronto area in recent months. Uh, They all want us to take a stronger stand on China. And as you pointed out, that wasn't the case 10 years ago. Um, But things have changed with China. You know, 10 years ago, our relationship with China was one of cooperation. Uh, There were, to be certain, there were irritants in the bilateral relationship. Uh, Things weren't 100% smooth. Uh, but there wasn't the kind of threats and intimidation and belligerence that we're now seeing from China. That's all changed. Uh, that's all happened in the last you know, three, four, five years. Uh, China has become a, uh, has not been a constructive player on the world stage. So they're not simply threatening Canadian citizens and Canadian companies and Canadian interests. They're threatening democracies around the world um, in the South China Seas, uh, Australia, uh, European countries. And it's time that we change in response to that to make it clear that we will stand up for what we believe in and we will defend our interests working together with our allies. Uh, Obviously, we're starting to see a trend here, and this is becoming more and more obvious to Canadians. But how do you explain his attractiveness 
to the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, you know, you go back to the beginning of the pandemic, uh, back March and April, when the UK was trying to set up, uh, you know, production facilities and Canadian companies were banging on the door of the government saying, if we need help, we're, uh, you know, we need help, but we're just a few months behind uh, the other large companies on all of this, uh, the whole CanSino thing. Uh, he, he got involved in that in, instead and was, again, slapped by the Chinese Communist Party when they pulled the rug out from underneath them. Why does he keep going back for more? What are we missing here? Well, it's a good question, Scott. I think it's. I think they're dangerously dangerously naive on China. Um, I think they gloss over the threats that China presents to this country. The head of CSIS, has David Vigneault, has said uh, many times in the last couple of years that China is, presents a threat to Canada. I think Canada's uh, national security agencies are, are getting increasingly frustrated with this government's uh, blasé approach to the threats that China poses. Um, and I think, um, I think it's all a naivete about uh, you know, the growing power and threats that China is presenting to Canada. Where is this going, Michael? Uh, are our allies waking up to this as well and, and joining Canada? Yes, I think democracies are incre- increasingly becoming aware of this threat and are increasingly collaborating together. Um, you know, democracies are often slow to react uh, to events like this. Um, they're often slow to coordinate because democratic decision-making processes often are, are difficult. Um, they're not uh, dictatorial. They're not top-down. And so you've got to get a consensus on how to proceed. And increasingly, democracies around the world are starting to work together to counter China's uh, malevolent influences. And Canada needs to be part of that effort. And I think too often we're not at the table. I'll give you one example. You know, there, President Biden recently uh, called the heads of government of India, Australia, and Japan. And those four countries, uh, which of which one is the United States, are calling for a first summit of something called the quadrilateral security dialogue. Many people think that this could evolve into the Eastern NATO. And Canada needs to be part of that discussion, needs to be at that summit uh, to work with these four allies and partners uh, to counter China's threats in the Indo-Pacific region, just like we were at the table uh, in the creation of the Western alliance, the NATO alliance, some 75 years ago. Uh, but Canada is not present, and you know the government is, uh, you know, I believe, naively um, unaware of these of the threat that China proposed that China poses, uh, and needs to change its position and, and get to the table. Uh, obviously, the Olympics, and this is the last question, Michael, the Olympics a, a year away now, not much time. Uh, does a decision on this have to be made sooner rather than later? Could this go right up to the doorstep of the Games? Yeah, I think a decision does need to be sooner rather than later, which is why we've made our call for action uh, this week. We think it's time is of the essence. The government needs to make a formal request of the International Olympic Committee, uh, needs to work with allies like the United States uh, to seek a relocation of those games. Uh, time's running short, and we need to stand up for the values that we've long stood for as a country and back that up with action. 
Michael Chong has been with us, conservative MP for Wellington Halton Hills. Uh, Aaron O'Toole and the conservatives calling for a relocation of the 2022 Wimper, uh, Winter Olympics out of Beijing, obviously for human rights issues and what has happened, not to mention the two Michaels. Uh, and obviously uh, a decision will have to be made sooner rather than later on all of this. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott, for having me. We've talked at length over the 49 weeks we've been uh, broadcasting from home on how uh, this has changed the way we do things. And uh, many thought over in the first uh, few months, ah, it'll be over, we'll be out the other end, and it'll all be good. Uh, but obviously when you're stuck uh, in the situation that we have all been stuck in for the last year, it is going to make some changes, and some of those changes uh, will stick. Let's bring in Catherine Ward, reporter for Global News, and a two-part series uh, from Global's Cat Ward on how working from home during the pandemic has changed both our economy and society. Catherine Ward is with us now. Cat, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. You know, what the heck? You could, uh, you, you know, I could give you some material for a story here if you want to talk about broadcasting from home. But right? this is this is a fascinating issue, and we've talked about it a lot on the show, that uh, obviously we've had to adapt uh, words like nimble and pivot and all that sort of thing. But you got to wonder how much of this is going to stick and how it's going to change the future moving forward. You know, it's really interesting because I think that is the question, you know, and right now we are so in this short-term mindset of like, let's get through the pandemic. Let's just get through the pandemic and see what happens. But, you know, through this series about looking at working from home and what it means, the data is showing more and more, Scott, that workplaces are looking at this as being a viable tool going forward and figuring out the best way to leverage it. And what would be the advantages to both, both the the person who's working, the worker, and and the company? What are the advantages or even disadvantages here? Well, I think the advantages, you know, in, a, in let's say in non-COVID times, because we totally get why during COVID it's important to stay home and do what we can if it's possible to do so. But in non-COVID times, I mean, think about this. Um, I'm a parent. I'm a mom of two girls. If one of them is sick and I have to stay home to care for them, you know, wouldn't it be nice to not have to take a vacation day or a sick mm-hmm. day to have to do that? And perhaps there is some way that, you know, I can log on from home and the infrastructure is in place and it's accepted that that would be uh, a good work day or even shift my hours around. That's something that we're seeing a lot of companies doing where especially parents or people who care for others, they might do four hours in the morning, take a break for the afternoon, you know, dinner, bedtime rush, and then they go back to work at night and that works well for them. So it's a huge advantage. Or even just yesterday, huge snowstorm hit, hit the southern part of Ontario and it's not safe to head out onto the roads. But if everybody has the ability to work from home and we know how to do that in whatever industry we are a part of, it's great to be able to have that as an option at our fingertips. It's also interesting, too, Kat, that this technology has been around for a while. It's been around for a long time. And, you know, we're not sure, you know, but the the pandemic forced us to take advantage of this. And it's amazing the leaps and bounds that have been made since then. Absolutely. And we are seeing this, Scott, in so many different ways. For example, I spoke with a small business owner this week in Midtown Toronto, and I heard of a similar situation out in the Niagara region where they're offering, um, you know, Zoom tours of their store, like personalized shopping sessions. Yeah. And in one store, you know, they, they sell clothing. And so literally one of the uh, clerks will just you book a Zoom call and they show you the clothes and they develop this rapport and this connection. And what the store owners have found is that it's been expanding their customer base 
out of province and even out of country. So it's pretty amazing. And when you think about that right there, because, you know, lots of chatter about retail and, you know, the closures, the lockdowns that have happened and a lot of them moving to online and, and completely reorganizing uh, that side of their business. And we've seen this with restaurants as well. But as you said, to all of a sudden, you know, how do you do that with clothes? How do you there's certain objects that you can purchase online that are no problem. There's other stuff that I don't know. It depends. Right. And and the whole idea of personal shopping is brilliant when you think about it because it's even more personal than walking into a store and have it, and having a sales clerk come up to you and serve you. This is, you make this appointment, which which I think is a great idea. And so convenient too, because you can pick your time and, you know, maybe yeah. it's after the kids go to bed. Maybe it's when the store might not have traditionally been open, but you're right. We've been forced to find ways to find creativity out of pure sur- the need to survive, you know, to keep our- these businesses running. And it is very interesting to see how it's happening. What about disadvantages? Because obviously, you know, we've been working from home for a while now, um, and, and lots of people just miss the contact, miss the camaraderie, miss that, you know, the brainstorming, the sort of thing. And, and obviously that can happen over Zoom. But wh- what are the challenges and disadvantages of this? There are many, and I think you're right. The connectivity is something that we are all craving. I mean, I am totally that person, Scott. When I see somebody that I have not seen in a long time, I am overcompensating with my hello. And, you know, I can't hug people. I can't give them a high five. I can't handshake them. It's just so weird for me. But all of those soft connections, we are definitely missing that. And I spoke with a behavioral scientist, and she said, you know, it's hard for people to get their point across in the same way, you know, especially if you speak with hand gestures or perhaps you're maybe a little bit more introverted and you don't want to jump in on the Zoom meeting. And even the sheer access question, you know, not everybody has access to great Wi-Fi, great bandwidth, or even the needed technology. So there is definitely a disadvantage if you don't have those things. Um, what about business itself? We've been talking about how that the experience has affected the employee. Uh, but again, there, there's businesses that have rented tons of space. It's sitting, it's sitting empty right now while everybody's at home. So how are they going to balance that? And you think of, you know, a city like uh, the size of a Toronto or, or a Montreal or Vancouver, where there's a tremendous amount of bricks and mortar office space and such. Uh, are our businesses going to have less of a footprint now? So I think that is one of those questions that is still very much unanswered. But what is quite evident is that businesses are evaluating what the needs of their office spaces really are. And what is the appetite for working from home? And if, you know, half the employees say that they want to have one day where they're at home, does that mean that they still need to have the same footprint? So there are surveys going around. And it looks as though right now um, there was a survey done about 700 companies. And they found that 78% are planning changes to their work from home strategies. And for more than half of those companies, what the survey told them was that it's going to totally need to revamp their space, whether it's, you know, a minor renovation or getting rid of a space altogether. But I don't think the office is going to go away. I think there will always be a place for that. But perhaps we might see a shift towards more shared workspaces, maybe not as many meeting rooms. Maybe we don't need those or a locker concept where you can put your laptop in a locker and then, you know, go to a cubby where you can plug in for the day. So lots of options, but I don't think there has been a verdict really for a lot of companies just yet because they do just want to get through the pandemic and see where their bottom line is and really what the workflow is going to be. 
Uh, staying with home obviously lowers some expenses, especially if you have to travel. Uh, are we going to see wages go down as a result of this? Definitely a good question. And so many people are wondering that because as the work changes, you know, the expenses do change too, and everybody's bottom line changes. So it's something that employers are grappling with. They And again, they're just trying to get out of this COVID pandemic time because it's hard to know what the new normal is going to be. So no hard and fast rules just yet. When do you think we'll start to, and my guess is this will be just so gradual, it's just like the pandemic itself, but, you know, I think a lot of people are waiting for a door to open up or close or or a light switch. Um, You know, say we get vaccinated by this summer, um, are we going to see these changes soon? Will they be gradual or will they they have to be soon just to switch from one, one template to another? So I'm not an expert, but what the research seems to indicate is that depending on the size of your company almost seems to depend on how quickly you need to make these choices. So if you're a small business where you have a very small team and the expenses are piling up and you don't have the income coming in, you might need to make a decision much more quickly within a matter of weeks or even months. And we do know from the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses that so many are on life support right now. They just cannot make those ends meet. So the next few weeks are going to be quite critical. I think for the larger companies, especially in the downtown core in Toronto, there's a a lot more wiggle room just because they, they do have a lot more money. And yes, they have a lot more staff as well. But we won't see, I think, a real decision on what that's going to look like for them or how their new reality will play out for a little bit longer, just because it takes time to shift that corporate culture. It's going to be neat to see from a human resources aspect how this changes. Because, I mean, you know, you're hearing lots of stories anecdotally and, and reading uh, information that's saying a lot of people just won't go back. They'll use this time to say, well, that's it, I'm out, or completely change careers, change companies, what have you. Uh, we haven't even got into that. But, yeah, you, you have to wonder how this is going to even change the landscape within businesses as people reevaluate where they are and if they want to stay. And I think to put a little bit of a spit on that, it's almost kind of exciting, I think, for somebody who is able to demonstrate that I can work from home. Maybe before the company or the individual thought that it was not possible, but because they have been truly forced to have to figure it out, and they have, for the most part, figured it out, I think it opens up a lot of possibility for people. Perhaps maybe they don't need to pay the sky-high downtown rents and they can move out to the country somewhere, something they've always wanted to do. Or perhaps it means a reinvention of what they thought their career was going to be. And the scientist I spoke with said that, in her opinion, she definitely feels as though we're sort of on this cusp of a renaissance in terms yeah. of our societal behavior. And it'll be very fascinating to see to catch up with her you know, in six months to see if it has come to fruition. I, Kat, I think you've hit the nail on the head here. I've got my kids, I've got two kids at home, uh, one in university at home, uh, first year university, the other, uh, a teenager as well. And I've seen a total shift in these kids over the course of this year. I would always joke around uh, about them and use the term Kardashian. It's like, man, this generation's just way too <laughs> Kardashian for me. It's just, it's simple stuff. It's surface stuff. This doesn't count. And boy, that attitude has really changed once they've had things taken away away from them that they very much valued and i really do think that this generation coming up will be the next greatest generation because they're going to have to make this work and and i think just like the baby boomers after the second world war this is going to say it's going to be the same thing to happen to this generation 
Absolutely. And what a formative experience in yeah. terms of having to really, you know, question what's necessary and what you're able to do and your freedoms. And just one final story. I, I, I'm not sure how much time we have, but um, Go ahead. there was a business owner that I spoke with, uh, the same one who was doing that Zoom shopping. So she has three kids. And uh, most of the time she was able to keep her work and home life separate. But because of the pandemic, you know, all got sandwiched together. And her oldest daughter is now thinking about business and she's trying to figure out ways to can help her mom out of her business. And so I think there's this amazing learning that's also going on for kids understanding what their parents go through at work, because truly it, we've all been thrown into the same household or into the same uh, dining room table. You know, the kids have yeah. their laptops out and parents have their work. So it's, it's interesting what's happening. Yeah, you bring up a very valid point, too, with just the fact, and it's been great for parents, too. It's great for me to be able to go in and peek at what my kids are doing in class or my uh, university student is doing in class. It's fascinating. That's something a parent would never get to see. Uh, and, and the same thing, they're seeing us at work. They're seeing us working and, and you know, complaining that we're spending too much time in front of the computer and not da-da-da-da. And it, it's, it really is, I believe, a, a learning experience. A lot are complaining that the kids aren't getting uh, the academic education that they would have got. But I don't know. I think there's a great life lesson here to be learned. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. Catherine Ward's been with us, reporter for Global News. Two-part series from uh, Catherine tonight on working from home during the pandemic and how that has changed both our economy and society going forward. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Kat, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.